All right, here we go. We're going to try this again in three, two. Hi again. Welcome to this edition of Title Health on Point. I'm Roger Fallabout, Director of Strategic Communications at Title Health Peninsula Regional and across the health system. Host your program today, too. And on the show, zooming in from our Ocean Pines campus and in between patients is a guy that I've admired for a number of years, and I know that you will Two at the conclusion of this podcast. He's Dr. John Mansweddy, Director of Radiation Oncology Services at Tidal Health's Richard A. Henson Cancer Institute. And Dr. Mansweddy, welcome to the program. It's great to finally have you here. Thank you, Roger. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. So I want the viewers to get to know you a little better. One of the first things we do with all of our first timers is to have uh, our listeners and our viewers learn a little bit about you. So where'd you grow up? What inspired you? How did you end up on the Eastern Shore? Sure, absolutely. I, I'm actually an Eastern Shore boy. I grew up over here. I, uh, I was uh, in middle school uh, in the Eastern area and moved to St. Michael's for high school. So I call St. Michael's my home, actually. Uh, and I, you know, I worked on the water in the summer as a waterman. I worked in the local restaurants, just kind of what all the locals do around here. And uh, just had a great, great childhood, great high school experience. Uh, there's nothing like growing up in the Chesapeake Bay. And so, you know, that's what that's the biggest motivation for me to come back is to stay on the, uh, on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay. That's really cool. You know, I mentioned at the top of the program, too, that I really admire you, and I honestly mean that. And one of the things that I greatly admire about you is your military service. You flew fighter jets off of aircraft carriers, and we'll talk about that uh, in just a couple of moments. But the first thing I want to talk about is something that I think is equally as remarkable. It's really difficult for any young man or any young woman to get into the United States Naval Academy, yet you managed to do that. What inspired you? What was your motivation to join the Naval Academy? Yeah, that, you know, I think, I think that goes back to, uh, you know, the, the history of my father. He actually was, uh, he enlisted in, in the army in World War II. He actually got captured in the Battle of the Bulge uh, in Germany, he spent several months in a POW camp. And unfortunately, he contracted rheumatic fever while I was in there. And so he actually died before I was even born. He died a week before I was born. So I actually never knew my father. But I think that whole idea that he had served and been in the military stuck with me. And so I sort of kind of became a little bit fascinated with military when I was in medical school and high school and did a lot of research on it. And, you know, remember the days in the counselor's office you go in, they'd have catalogs from each college. I literally picked up the catalog from the Naval Academy, started thumbing through it and uh they're showing guys flying in jets and jumping out of airplanes with parachutes and uh, going on submarines. I said, that looks like a lot of fun. I want to give that a shot. So, you know, it was, it, it kind of came down to that, that uh, I thought this looks like an exciting place to go to college. Let's give it a shot. Uh, and, uh, you know, I looked at West Point. I looked at Air Force Academy. I think the Naval Academy was the best fit for my personality. I love, I love the water. I love being on the sea. So that's how it all started. Yeah. And you weren't too far from home either. Yeah, I, it's funny. I didn't even know the Naval Academy existed. That's how ignorant I was on the service <laughs> academies at that point. And it was like 30 miles away until I walked into the counselor's office and figured it out. That's when the light bulb went. I'm like, oh, I got this gem right on the shores of Chesapeake Bay. I should look at this. Right. Let me share something with you that I don't know that, that I ever have, and we've been friends for a number of years. Uh, and that is the fact that in 1986, when I was a young reporter in Kalamazoo, Michigan, I actually flew with the Blue Angels in the backseat of the number seven jet with Lieutenant Wayne Molner right in front of me. We were over Lake Michigan. I had the stick to that jet in my hands for about 10 minutes, 
34 years later, my friend, I can't explain to anyone how awesome that experience was, yet you flew these things for years, so I'm hoping that John Menswetty can do a much better job of telling our listeners and our viewers how cool it is to have the supersonic machine for the United States Navy in your hands. Yeah, it, it, obviously it was just an incredible experience. The whole you know training where you start not knowing anything about flying to flying this high performance jet is just an incredible journey and experience. And and I think the thing that you may have noticed is sort of how physically demanding it is, how um, violent it is in the cockpit when you're doing you know hardcore maneuvers, uh, air air combat maneuvering exercise we do. You if you're under IG forces. You're having to, you know, keep your wits about you and, and do, you know, chew gum, dance, and sing at the same time. You're doing 20 things at the same time, so it's a very dynamic environment, very exciting. Flying off the ship, especially at night, is incredible. Uh, I don't want to use the word scary, but it definitely gets your anxiety going when you have to land on that thing at night. And uh, it's rocking and rolling in a storm. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's very, it's a very intense uh, experience. It's something that I cherish, and it, you almost start to crave it because you get a bit of hot, you get a high from it and want to, uh, you know, do more and more of the flying. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those things that I, I, I look back and thank God that I made that decision to, you know, go to the Naval Academy, go to flight school. And then I was fortunate enough to get jets and, it just, it was, uh, you know, it was, it, it's, it's hard to describe. It's incredible. Yeah. So you're an 18, 19 year old kid. You got this multi-million dollar jet in your hands. How long did it take you to get comfortable making those aircraft carrier landings and takeoffs? Yeah, it's funny. You know, the first time you do it, you're alone. Nobody's with you. You're solo. So, you know, you practice at the field and then you go out to the ship and the first time you, uh, you actually, you actually trap. And when you hit that wire, you're going 150 miles an hour to zero in like under two seconds. So you, that's a violent event. And then you're all alone in the airplane. You're like, holy cow. And then they take you to the front of the jet and they put you on a catapult and they send you off that. And the catapult is like the most incredible amusement ride you can imagine. You almost feel like you're going to pass out. The power is so intense. And before you know it, you're in the air flying and you just turn it downwind to land again. And so that that's almost a blur the first time you do it. And then... But the more and more you do it, you practice over and over and over again. You start to get comfortable and you really start to, to be able to enjoy it. And then you got to do it at night. <laughs> and you don't enjoy that. Ever. Yeah. Um, Lieutenant Molner, when I flew with him back in 1986, he simulated a carrier landing for me when we came down. So he, he put the jet down rather hard on the, on the runway. Now, we didn't go from 150 to zero in two seconds, but it gave me kind of an idea uh, of what it was like. And, and I want to share one more experience from flying that jet because it is the coolest thing I've ever done. And I want your take on this too. When he put the stick in my hand, he, he said, move it left move it right, and, and we're going to roll the jet over. So I gently moved the stick to the left, and the, the jet gently rolled over to the left, and I, and I, and I, and I was looking at the instruments, and I, and I brought the jet back up to level on the horizon, and he said to me, that was great, but you rolled it like your grandmother. Now grab the stick and roll the jet over. So I made the mistake of grabbing the stick and snapping the stick to the left, and I can't tell you how quickly that jet went around and how many times it went around. <laughs> exactly right. It's, like I said, it's very violent. And you, 
and you can get disoriented very, very quickly. So you definitely need to practice. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was, I tell my kids the two greatest things in my life was, was being there for, for when they were born. But flying that jet is, is a very, very close second to both of my kids. That's no, awesome. No. Yeah, not many people get to experience. So I'm so glad you did. Yeah, it's remarkable. All right. So let me, let me move past my life as a reporter in 1986 okay. and, and come into the modern day. Um, so here you are, you're a fighter pilot for the U.S. Navy. Check that one off the bucket list. That's an awesome thing. Uh, you could have called it a career right there, but you chose not to. You then decided to go into medicine and go into medical school and in one of the most challenging fields I can think of, cancer care. What was the motivation there behind that move? Yeah, I, you know, it, it, it kind of goes back to my kids too. They, uh, all my children, I had three daughters, they were all premature. So I spent a lot of time in the hospital. That probably each child was in the hospital well over a month. And so I sort of was able to sit back and see what these doctors and nurses did uh, in healthcare, and I thought that's a really, really neat job. You know, you're really giving back. It's it's very rewarding. It's very emotional. And I thought, you know, I I, I could see myself doing this. You know, and at the time, uh, uh, we were trying to because I was in the first Gulf War, and after the Gulf War, they were trying to downsize, and so uh, they were trying to um, you know entice people to possibly get out. And, but I love the military. So I thought, how can I stay in and really um, maybe sidestep to another career within the military uh, that I know I would enjoy. And so it's kind of a win-win where the military actually has a medical school in Bethesda. So I applied to that and got in. So I was very fortunate to stay in the military, uh, get my degree and serve the military as both a phys- you know, physician and a pilot. So, you know, it was like a win-win for me. And, and, and uh, you know, that's basically how it happened is my, my children got me interested in it. And as far as oncology, um, I think uh, the first time I started working with some oncology patients, I thought, boy, these people really get it. They understand what's important right now. They don't sweat the little stuff. They, they, they want to do what you tell them to do to get better. And so, uh, and it's a very, you get a very amazing personal uh, relationship with your cancer patients. And so when I saw that, I said, this is, this is for me. And it's kind of funny. I thought I was going to be a medical oncologist, a chemotherapy doctor. Uh, and I saw radiation oncology was a medical student. I said, like, I've been going to radiation oncology. Other boring, you know? <laughs> and then I, uh, I, I went out and worked at Navy for a few years as a, as a physician. And when I had come back to my residency, my, my partner uh, that I worked in in the clinic said, you should look at radiation oncology. And I did. I thought, you know, he's right. It's a fascinating career. So I actually ended up in the career that I thought I'd never want to go into. <laughs> uh, and I get to work with uh, cancer patients every day. Best job in the world. Yeah, I'll bet it is. Um, we mentioned at the top of the program that you're the director of uh, radiation oncology services for Title Health Richard A. Henson Cancer Institute. In that role, what exactly do you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of look at my role as ensuring that our patients here on the Eastern Shore get the highest quality, most advanced cancer care available. And for radiation oncology, that means staying up on the technology, staying up on the research, staying up, staying up on the standard of care. And so my role is to make sure that all the doctors, not just me, but all the doctors in our clinic adhere to that, that all our staff, our therapists, our physics team, it's really a, a team approach in radiation oncology to treat the patient. That everybody is you know, basically at the top of their game, that they're uh, you know, making sure that they pay attention to detail because uh, detail is so important in this business. You can't miss one little thing or it could go bad and you may not cure the patient. So. So that, you know, it, it, to me is the biggest thing is make sure we stay up on technology, make sure we stay up on knowledge and make sure that we uh, have a good quality control a system to make sure we catch any kind of mistake that might fall through. 
Speaking of knowledge, I'm really glad I have you here today because, you know, we're, we're in the middle of this pandemic. People still need to be cared for. Uh, unfortunately, and, and perhaps even sometimes tragically, there are folks who are reluctant or refuse to come to their physician's office or to a hospital for care because they're fearful of contracting COVID-19. As a physician, what do you say to those people? So, Roger, I mean, you make an excellent point. I've actually seen that firsthand. I've seen several patients that have come in with very advanced disease that have had, they had, they had come in when they really should have and when they knew they started to have symptoms, but they didn't because they were fearful of COVID, that they probably would have been caught at a much earlier stage and potentially curable. And I've seen several patients that uh, they're probably not curable now, that the cancer is allowed to advance, to spread. And, you know, unfortunately, because of the whole milieu of, of worrying about COVID and plus, you know, we weren't doing some screening tests, you know, way back in March, April, sort of shut down some of that just because uh, of the fear and we weren't sure how things would work up. But, you know, at this point, nobody should be fearful, in my opinion, at all to come in and get any kind of screening tests, you know, mammogram, colonoscopy, uh, low-dose lump CT scan, because the hospital has protocols to make sure it is done safely. Uh, we're all wearing masks, we're all wearing shields, you know, every surface wiped down 20 times a day. We're practicing social distancing, typically only the patients allowed in. And so uh, I think one of the safest places you could be is coming to our clinic or the hospital, much safer than going to their local grocery store, in my opinion. Uh, so I, I don't think people should be fearful of all in one bit uh, to come into one of our facilities to get to either screening or medical care. Back to cancer care, as, as I age, as we all age, what are the certain screenings in particular that I should be paying close attention to? Sure. No, absolutely. Uh, so uh, the, the main ones are the ones that we have good evidence to prove that screening can improve survival, decrease deaths without doing additional harm is colonoscopy, which I'm sure you're sort of familiar with. And it depends which guidelines you're looking at, what age they recommend starting that. Some guidelines recommend at each start at age 45. Some recommend starting at age 50. Typically, you go to about 75, but sometimes even later, if somebody's extremely healthy and they've lived to 100 years old, so colonoscopy is a very important one. Breast um, mammograms are obviously very important. It's another screening studies that has shown decreased mortality, breast cancer mortality. Uh, and once again, that's depending on which organization you look at. In general, they recommend for sure women 50 years or older, uh, but some guidelines bring it down to 40 years. And sometimes even younger in high-risk patients, you know, if you have a you know, big family history of breast cancer. Uh, pap smears for women also to screen for cervical cancer. Uh, is very important. And then the other one is low-dose lung CT scan. And this is for patients that have a significant tobacco history. Uh, there's been a good study that shows that an low-dose uh, CT scan of the lungs can catch lung cancer early and um, you know, improve our chances of curing you. And actually, can, that screening test has shown improved survival. There's some other ones like the PSA test for men. That's uh, a blood test. Uh, that uh, is with a conversation with your physician, uh, whether you should get that or not is another very important one. So that's the, the main ones are breast, colonoscopy, uh, uh, obviously the mammogram for breast, um, the cervical cancer, the pap smear, uh, or the or three one main ones. And best so advice, yeah, sorry, best advice is always talk to your doc, right? Correct, correct. This is a no-brainer, but let me run this past you anyhow. At 51 years old, a general yearly annual physical detected my prostate cancer, saved my life. How important is early detection to everything that we're doing in cancer care? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's huge because, 
you know, if we catch your lung cancer at stage one, you're cured. You come to me, you, you come to the surgeon, you know, we're, we're most likely going to cure you that. I don't really see that. You come in the door with stage 3B lung cancer, so not stage 4, but 3B, so you're still quote-unquote durable. We probably only have a 5 or 10% chance of curing. So you went from 90 to 100% down to 5 or 10%, and that was just by us catching it you know, 6, 12 months earlier than if you became symptomatic, and all of a sudden you had this fault, and that's how we figured it out. So so it's it's huge. You know, the, the colonoscopy is great because not only is it diagnostic, it potentially is curative because if you see a pileup, they take it out right then that polyp will never turn into a cancer 10 years down the road so that's not only you know diagnosing you with or without cancer but it's also uh, a treatment for you to make sure you never get cancer down the road so those are you know key vital I, as soon as i turn age 50 i went and got my colonoscopy boom you know it, it's just you don't mess around with that cancer is cancer it is what it is and fundamentally from hospital to hospital it's treated pretty much the same way but here on the Delmarva Peninsula the Richard A. Henson Cancer Institute is really considered the gold standard for cancer care what sets us apart from everyone else yeah I, you know I think one of the things we really do good do very well here is uh, a multidisciplinary approach that means it's not just the the surgeon, you're seeing the surgeon and he just does a surgery and then you're let go. Basically what we do is each cancer case is presented in a multidisciplinary fashion with multiple physicians in the room, research, uh, with a radiologist there, a pathologist, an oncologist, a radiation oncologist, a surgeon. And we're looking at each case and we're deciding what is the best course of treatment for this patient. So it's not just one individual making that treatment plan. It's a group consensus because sometimes you might hear something from another specialty that you didn't even think about that is a better way to go. And so that approach is done on every cancer patient. Today, we had our gastrointestinal tumor board this morning. So we do this weekly. Uh, long, we had it yesterday afternoon. Every lung patient presented. So that is key right there as a multidisciplinary approach uh, to each patient to make sure they, that their care is optimized. And absolutely every stone has been turned over to make sure there's any other therapy that may help in this computer intact. You and I both know that treating cancer is more than treating the tumor. So what else do we offer patients uh, in treating the whole person for cancer? Sure, yeah. I mean, we have a lot of you know, sort of social things that are huge, I think, in the cancer world. Our, our, our social workers are fantastic about plugging patients into this. I mean, it can be something as simple as a, uh, a group uh, meeting of patients that may have had head neck cancer. They meet once a month and they talk and, and they bring new members in and sort of tell the new patients, you know, this is what you can expect. This is the side of it. You know, that stuff really decreases the anxiety, which is huge. You know, a big thing that we don't, um, we're just learning is how important your immune system is in the whole process of trying to cure your cancer. And so anything we can do to sort of help your anxiety level, uh, you know, help your nutrition to keep your immune system optimized is important. So we always, we have automatic nutrition consults. We have automatic social work consults if you have some anxiety. I mean, we have Tai Chi. We have we, all these things that uh, are sort of alternative treatments in addition to your standard of care uh, that fit certain patients and it just could have, you know, really improved their outcome. Yeah, again, as a cancer survivor who went through treatment at the Henson Cancer Institute, uh, it was, all of that was extremely important to me uh, and extremely beneficial. Helped me to get through it, absolutely. Let me get you out of here on this one. Uh, Dr. Mansweti, looking into the Mansweti crystal ball, where do you see cancer and cancer care 20, 25 years down the road? Sure, it's becoming much more boutique I guess, is the way I put it, uh, much more individualized. And the reason why I say that, we're getting down to the genetic level of 
why this tumor cell or this cell decided to turn into a tumor cell, basically. So we're actually getting to the level where we, we know the exact mutation on what DNA strand had happened and which exon was taken out. And we now have certain drugs that can target certain mutations. And so we are analyzing tumors to try to see if we can find one of these mutations that we can call actionable mutation. It's a mutation that we have a drug that can action on that mutation. And so, you know, uh, uh, lung cancer is a great example. We have certain mutations that if we, if you have say an ALK mutation, we can give you this drug. It's not chemotherapy, it's actual drug that, that targets somewhere in the signaling pathway in the cell and can make tumors basically disappear. And that, they tend not to be curative, but they, they are incredible what, what they do and then allows us to hit you with something else, radiation, chemo, maybe immunotherapy. And so so we're, we're finding new targets almost weekly is, is what I'm saying. So that's sort of the boutique area. The other area is uh, harnessing your immune system to help us fight cancer. This is huge right now. There's so much research going on. And, you know, it seems like every week a new tumor type is, is uh, certified to be you know, available to use immunotherapy. So, you know, this all started in the melanoma area where patients would have stage four melanoma. They probably had weeks to months to live. And back in, when I train, we see those patients sometimes now we're literally curing them with immunotherapy. And what I mean by that is we're giving you drugs that, that, help your immune system recognize the tumor is basically what those drugs do. And then your immune system attacks the tumor and cures you. And so that's the latest and greatest uh, targeted therapy, otiki, and immunotherapy. We're going to be, we're just at the tip of the iceberg uh, using those tools. And so the next 20, 30 years is going to be figuring out how to optimize those. Yeah, that's really, it's really remarkable stuff. And, you know, uh, and thank you very much for all that you do for, uh, for cancer patients and cancer care here on, on the Delmarva Peninsula. And, uh, and thanks for being on the show today. You know, Dr. John, Mans- Dr. John Mansweti, fighter pilot, uh, cancer physician, all-around good guy, windsurfer. We didn't even get into that today, uh, but I'd love to have you back on the program again uh, and, and just share some more thoughts about, uh, about what it's like uh, to be you because I think you've led a remarkable life. And uh, as I said, you're one of the most interesting guys I've ever met and one of those guys that I absolutely admire. And, uh, and again, thanks so much for, for all you do and for being here. Thank you, Roger. A pleasure as always. Thank you, sir. And that will do it for this edition of Title Health on Point. If you'd like to learn more about the services offered by the Richard A. Henson Cancer Institute at Title Health, please hit us up on the website. That's titlehealth.org. For Dr. John Mansweti, I'm Roger. We will see you again on the next edition of Title Health on Point. Point.